This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church. What do we mean when we say move? I know we've already gone through this, but there are so many definitions, it's ridiculous. So let's get to them. Move. A pattern of dance steps. So don't just stand there, bust a move. Move. To propose formally in a deliberate assembly. Think a courtroom lawyer, I move to dismiss, all that formality kind of stuff. Move. To start away from a place, to depart. Like when you're sitting on an airplane and the pilot comes on and says, It'll just be a few more minutes until we start moving. Everyone knows what that means? No one's moving. Move. To take action. Of course we end here. This is what we're talking about. Being called to action. Being called to move. Well, I want to ask you a question this morning. When you think about sharing the gospel with someone, what comes to mind? When you think about sharing your faith, what you believe about who Jesus is, what he did for you, what he did for them, when you think about sharing that with someone, anybody, right? what comes to mind? What do you think about? You know, a couple of you, you might be uh, thinking that this is your least favorite topic to talk about, right? What comes to mind is some mild indigestion, uh, some discomfort, maybe some nervousness about that topic. Uh, uh, others of you, you, you might be thinking about some uh, maybe particular method of how to handle uh, those kinds of opportunities and what to say and, and things of that nature. And still others of us might be, uh, we might be thinking about guilt, Right? Because, you know, we're professionals and, and that's just not what you're supposed to do in the workplace. And so many times when we think about this topic or we hear it being brought up, we, we feel trapped between a rock and a hard place, right? All kinds of things might come to mind when you hear about that. But I wonder if we were to dig around in there long enough, if what wouldn't also be coming to mind is a little bit of disillusionment with sharing your faith. A little bit of disillusionment. Because as someone commented to me recently about conversions, you just don't really hear about that sort of thing happening much anymore. You still really hear about that sort of thing happening much anymore. So I wonder if, if there is not a pervading thought in our mindsets that the lines are already drawn up. The lines are already drawn up. You know, some, some people are over there with their beliefs. Some people are over there with their thinking. And still others are over there. And so there's really not much use trying to persuade them. You know, maybe there's like 1% or 2% of people that are kind of like sitting on the fence, you know, about things. But, but for the most part, people know and people have made up their minds. For the most part, people know and people have made up their minds. Sound familiar? I think that that thought is actually a pervading mindset amongst a lot of Christians, ourselves 
included. We, we don't really like to say it. In fact, we probably would never actually say it. But if somehow the curtains could be pulled back, that's really what we would find. And maybe we've even got some personal experiences, maybe some data from sociologists or authors out there to confirm our ideas here. And here's the thing about this particular idea. It just sounds uh, like it's right. It just actually makes a lot of sense to our senses. For many of us, the thought that, that there's really not much opportunity here, there's not really much use here, comes to mind, and it just sounds like common sense. And, and, and what it does is it zaps us of our confidence. It discourages us. It, 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 it takes our confidence and checks it at the gate. Because really, what's the likelihood that I'm going to come across that 1% to 2% and make any kind of significant headway? This idea that most people know and most people have made up their minds has actually left a lot of us Christians trapped, zapped of our confidence, discouraged, and then feeling a bit guilty every time we think about it, and we think about how a Christian that believes in a real heaven, in a real hell, in a real Jesus is called to talk to everyday people about the gospel message. We just feel that guilt. But this disillusionment, it's in a lot of our minds with regard to sharing our faith. And you know what? It will stay right there, as long as God is kept out of the picture. This idea will just keep sounding like common sense, as long as God has been neatly trimmed out of the equation. And dealing with that mindset, now our hearts here, our attitudes around sharing our faith, is what I really want to focus on this morning. And to do that, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 9 with me to take a look at this passage as we keep working our way through the book of Acts as part of the MOVE series. And, and here we've moved actually into a brand new section here in, in chapter 9. Here the gospel has made such a large impact on the city of Jerusalem that the Jewish leaders have turned to violence and persecution to put a stop to it. Stephen, one of the godly men we met last week in chapter 6, has been stoned to death. And all kinds of other horrors have happened, causing the Christians in Jerusalem to scatter. Uh, this, this effort has been led by a man named uh, Saul, whose Greek name was Paul. Saul was the ringleader behind Stephen's stoning and more. And just to be clear, if you're not real familiar with your Bibles, this is Saul in the New Testament, not King Saul from, from the Old Testament. And, and, and Saul here is that driving force. And, and as these Christians are scattering, they're hitting the road with their faith. And God, as they're going, has all kinds of divine appointments for them with individuals across this whole region as the gospel is on the move. And in these stories, the gospel is actually specifically crossing all kinds of different social and ethnic barriers. And we find, though, as it's on the move here, that there's one story that really stands out of the crowd. 
It's kind of like that old Sesame Street game, which one of these things is not like the others, right? You know, it, that's how it appears. Uh, this incident is unique, and in it we see that the gospel is going in an unexpected direction. So take a look at it with me in Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now pause there. In, in this text, when it says that Saul is breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, th- this is with the sense of, of inhaling too. This, this is in the sense that, that this is what Saul was living for. This was the air he's breathing. And, and you can see that in his past actions, but you can also see that in the request here. Because see, n- nobody is like telling Saul, Saul, you need to go 160 miles north to Damascus to get all those Christians. Uh, Saul is volunteering. He is orchestrating this uh, on his own to take a group of guards and go up there and arrest anyone, even women, the passage points out, who are belonging to the way. Uh, the way here is an early term that is, uh, was used to refer to the Christian faith. And so that's what Saul's up to. And he becomes here the premier example of opposition to Christianity. He's the, he is the face of the violent assault that, as Luke describes, was laying waste to the early church. This is a violent man. As someone else once described him, he's like the Haman of the New Testament. That's who this is. And that's why what happens next is so upside down. It's so unexpected. Verse 3, we read, Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus. And suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, He heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. This description here of this event, it fits all of the earmarks of a theophany. And we discovered that Jesus Christ is the one that is at the center of it. But this is not a friendly encounter. This is not a friendly encounter. Um, Jesus uses Saul's name here twice. It shows emphasis. It's showing an emphatic usage of it. Typically, when Jesus does that, that's in the accusatory sense. And this is especially so as Jesus repeats the accusation of persecution twice here, and he uses it in the, in the tense of the present, right? So this is not him saying, uh, Saul, why have you done this? Rather, this is him saying, Saul, why are you doing this right now? And, and, and that's why Saul is falling to the ground here. He's not falling to the ground in the sense of surrender. He is falling to the ground in the sense of the weight of accusations that are being hurled at him by God. And under that weight, he collapses. 
And he doesn't even know who this is. But the discovery that this is Jesus behind this theophany would have rocked Saul's world. It showed him that Jesus was indeed the risen Savior. And and that everything, thus, that Saul had been doing was wrong. Was wrong. Verse 7. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Remember that. Verse 8, Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing. And so they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now, Saul's sudden blindness here was utterly humbling. Somebody else has to take him by the hand and, like a child, bring him into Damascus. And his response is fasting. Fasting. And, and, and not just any kind of fasting, the most serious kind of fasting, as my father would call it, an emergency fast. No food, no water for three days. This fasting here is a response to God's accusation and his judgment. And so it's a response of repentance. Several times throughout the Old Testament, this is how God's people would respond. When a word of judgment uh, from the Lord would come, they would respond with fasting as part of their repentance. As we'll see next week, this is indeed Saul's response here. This This is his conversion to becoming a follower of Jesus. And this conversion is so significant that it's actually retold two more times in the book of Acts. In fact, Saul's conversion, it's all over the New Testament. Why? Why? Why is it that it was so important for Luke to share this story with Theophilus? Why did the early church need to hear it? Why? For the same reason you and I need to hear it. Because it teaches us a lot about God's power to save. And see, what you and I need to walk away from today with is that our confidence in God's power to save is never misplaced. Our confidence in God's power to save is never misplaced. See, friends, common sense says, Saul, of all people, Saul is never going to change. Common sense says that, that, that Saul knows all about Jesus, and he's made a decision. And common sense would tell us the same thing about all kinds of friends of ours, about all kinds of relatives, maybe a spouse, our kids, and so many others, that they know about Jesus, and they're not going to change. They're, they're, they're not going to believe in him. Common sense would tell us all of that. But that leaves out the power of God. That mindset results in a misplaced confidence in that person's power or in my power to convince them, as poor as it is. But it is in God's power to change the human heart. And that's where our confidence should be placed. Not in myself, not in them, not in my method, not in my environment, but upon God's power. Uh, 
Personally, I saw this play out in my own life uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, I, I had uh, been thinking about my performance in the arena of sharing my faith. And I was praying about it that evening with Adele. We, we, were, we were praying on Monday night, and I was just praying about it, and just that sense of inadequacy, that, that kind of just kind of weight of, boy, you are just not good enough <laughs> in this area, John. Come on. You know, it was just, it was just hanging over me. And so I was just praying that the Lord would, would move in some way here. The next morning, I got a call um, from my old realtor. Sold me my house. And I hadn't talked with him in, in two years. Um, but, uh, but, but before that, I had had a couple of conversations with him about faith. And, and he and his wife were someone that we had prayed for uh, a couple of different times because they were some folks that we knew were, were far from God. And that day, he called me up seemingly out of the blue, to tell me that he and his wife had accepted Christ and been baptized last fall. And it just hit me all over again. (laughs) Oh, yeah, God, you're the one in charge of all of this. (laughs) You're the Lord of the harvest, as Jesus says. My job is to just be faithful in sharing the truth and love. It's his power to save. That's to be my confidence and your confidence in sharing, and that's a confidence that's never misplaced. Gang, God's power turns a common sense equation on its head, because the hardest heart is no match for the sovereign mercy of God. And that's great news. His power can open the gates of any heart And that's why this passage is so relevant to us and was so relevant to the early church. And what is God's power to save here? Well, Romans 1.16 tells us, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. That's why you oftentimes hear us say around here that the gospel is effective. It's what Saul encounters here in verse 5. It's the reality that Jesus is the risen Savior and that Saul has been living in sinful opposition to him and to all that he taught. And through this new understanding, the rest of the pieces come together as God enables Saul to respond and have a heart change. And when we begin to grasp that God has laced the gospel message with power to change the sinful human heart, then we realize what a mistake it is for us when it comes to sharing our faith to just say someone's no for them, to not even give them the chance to hear about Jesus from us. This disillusionment that there's just not really many people out there that are interested has persuaded us into all kinds of poor decisions. And to believe that Jesus is, well, something that somebody else might not really be interested in or just offended by. And that mindset, it really lacks any confidence in our God. It's a faithlessness in him and his power to save. And it needs to be addressed. And if it has affected our witness, then repented of. So that a new picture of sharing our faith can be drawn up, one where not my power or someone else's power, but God's power is at the center of it. And so let's really unpack this a little bit more. Consider God's power to save and what it means for our confidence in him. So first, God's power to save. 
Here's what I want us to see about God's power to save from this passage. And that's that it's sovereign. God's power is sovereign. There is nothing that can stand in the way of God's power to save. And in this passage, I think that is perfectly exemplified in two places. First is in verse 7. Look back at it with me. And the men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no one. As we look at the other two uh, accounts of this event and we piece them together here, we see that, that the men who were with Saul, they see a light, but they don't see Jesus. They hear a voice, but they don't understand what it's saying. Listen, with absolute surgical precision, God reaches down and he saves just Saul. A whole group of men around him and God reaches down and saves just Saul. Surgical precision. God's sovereignty at work here. And you know what? Many of us have had that experience or we've had friends that have had that experience where they were in a whole crowd of people right? And they were hearing the same thing. They were hearing the same talk. They were seeing the same thing. They were having the same experience. And yet God reached down and tapped just them on the shoulder and opened their eyes to believing in him. That's the sovereign power of God to save at work. Second example. As we look at the text in here in verse 6, it's clear that God's decision to save Saul in particular was making a point. He was making a point that it's this man who's the absolute enemy of the early church, an enemy of Jesus, that Jesus is apparently planning to put to work. The point is pretty obvious. It's that if God can save this man, he can save anyone. If he can save this guy, change his heart, and have a plan and a purpose for what God's going to do with Saul, he can change and he can use anyone. God's sovereign. There's no one our God can't save because his power to save is sovereign over everything. But do we believe that? Because that's got to be our bedrock of confidence and nothing else will do. Now, seeing that and understanding how sovereign God's power is, it should begin to inform us. It should begin to reshape our confidence in sharing our faith in some pretty significant ways. Uh, I want to unpack this with regard to our confidence and seeing how it's reshaped by understanding God's power to save. Well, in the text here, there's two ways I believe that we can see God's sovereignty and salvation reshaping us. And the first is with prayer with prayer. That's the first mark of being reshaped here. If if you know the book of Acts well, you might know that Saul's salvation is actually an answer to prayer. It's an answer to Stephen's prayer back in chapter 7. Stephen, the guy who Saul was a part and leading the charge of murdering Saul's salvation is an answer to Stephen's prayer in chapter 7 that God wouldn't hold his murder against those who had murdered him. Friends, if you want to see a gutsy, faith-filled, gospel-believing prayer, look no further than Stephen's prayer. Saul's salvation is an answer to it. And for us, if we're really recognizing God's sovereignty in someone else's salvation, then prayer actually just makes sense. 
we can pray with confidence that, that God is at work, that he can open up someone else's eyes to seeing Jesus, and he can open up doors for us to share our faith. Prayer is a mark of confidence in God's power to save. Uh, Dr. Jerry Root from uh, Wheaton College, somebody who was really instrumental in uh, my desire to, to share my faith, especially when I was living in, in the big city of Chicago and feeling overwhelmed by cities, growing up in a small Kansas town of 2,500 people, you know, and being on a block with 25,000 people. <laughs> uh, he was instrumental and shaping me and, and giving me a desire. And Dr. Root did it oftentimes through stories. And he tells a particular story of slowly making friends with a local restaurant owner named Brad and deciding that he was going to pray for Brad each day. After about three weeks of this, uh, when he and Brad were talking one day at the restaurant, he said, Brad, I pray for you every day. I never miss. Uh, Brad, like most of us, was a bit surprised, <laughs> but taken aback. Uh, but that's all that was said. And three more weeks went by with the usual chit-chat. And then Jerry decided he'd mention it again. He told Brad. And uh, Brad let him know that he wasn't sure that he really believed Jerry the first time. But he did now. <laughs> and asked Jerry to be praying for his boys. And Jerry did. A uh, week goes by, Jerry shares with his family uh, about what he's been praying for, and, and, and his daughter pipes up, and apparently she goes to school with one of Brad's sons, and, and Brad's son had just started to attend the same youth group with her. The wheels were turning. A few more weeks go by, Jerry keeps mentioning to Brad every couple of weeks that he's praying for him, until one week when Brad decides that he's really going to open up to Jerry. And over the next few months and a few more conversations, Brad decided to put his trust in Jesus. But see, all the way along, it was Jesus who was slowly, sovereignly lining things up. And I wonder, what if we followed Jerry's example with prayer? What would happen? What if this was our practice? If we're somebody who believes in a real Jesus, in a real heaven, in a real hell, wouldn't this be a desire of ours? Because we have a confidence in God's power, not our own. And what if God used our faith-filled prayers as part of his plan to bring the, the souls in your life and my life into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ? Because praying and working like this would be a natural next step if our confidence was in God's power to save. And I want to challenge us to consider following Jerry's example here of beginning with prayer out of a confidence in God's power to save. Now, the second way our confidence is reshaped by God's power here is by recognizing that God is already at work. It's by recognizing that God is already at work. This is the second mark here, and actually, it's incredibly encouraging and key. Think about the text here. If there was ever someone who didn't show any kind of signs that Jesus was drawing him to himself, you'd be thinking it was Saul. And yet it's clear that God was intentionally planning to turn things around in the opposite direction to make a point. If you were reading closely, you probably noticed that Saul is on his way in verse 3 to persecute followers of the way from verse 2, that he becomes a member of the way, and that it's something that we see from Jesus' lips that he was planning, that he had a purpose 
already in mind for Saul. God was already at work in the events of Saul's life. And you can see that theme in story after story throughout the book of Acts. And that God was, in fact, catch this, going before his people. Long before somebody gets there with the gospel, God has already been at work in someone's life. And friends, it's no different for you and me. It's no different for you and me. With the people you and I long to share the message of the gospel with, we can have the confidence that God is already at work with them. Even if it doesn't go well, it's one more piece of his plan. This should, and that should shape our confidence. As one author put it, at times as you practice evangelism, you may think that you have struck out. But if you are afraid of striking out, don't play baseball. Of course, if you don't, you'll never know the joy of hitting a home run. It's the same with telling others about Jesus. Sometimes you may seem to whiff spiritually not understanding how your efforts fit into the grand scheme of God's purposes and plans. There will be other times you feel like you hit a home run and you enter into the joy of someone who has just understood the love and forgiveness of God. Friends, if our confidence really is being reshaped by God's sovereign power to save, then we can trust that God's already at work in the lives of the people around us. And with that confidence, the natural next step for us would be to see no one as being off limits. It would be to share Christ with them, thinking that, that we don't need to say anyone's no for them because we don't know how God might be at work in their life, preparing them to respond to the gospel. And gang, this is where we need to land. Because sharing our faith, as Arthur Wood said, is not a human enterprise. It is a divine operation. Our work is part of his plan. So let's prayerfully engage anyone with the good news. Because our confidence has been reshaped by God's power. And a confidence that's in God's power to save is a confidence that's never misplaced. Let's pray. Dear Lord, as we look at your word here, we can't help but notice the fact that Saul was utterly confident of his faith. And it was a misplaced confidence because it wasn't a confidence in your son, Jesus Christ. So Lord, we want to come to you today. And God, my prayer for us as a church body, as a congregation, gathered here today, knowing, Lord, that there's folks in here where their confidence is currently misplaced. Their confidence is in themselves. It's in their good works. It's in showing up to church. It's in not having been a horrible person. It's in some set of things that they have earned or haven't done horribly at. And God, I want to pray that you would be at work in their life. I want to pray that you would be opening up their eyes to see that the only power and the only source of confidence is in your son, Jesus Christ, and in what he did for them, and the forgiveness of sins that he offers, and the grace of a gift of salvation that's from him alone, and that they can bring nothing
to the table. They can bring nothing with them, but they can offer their heart to you in repentance, such as it is, as broken, as sinful, as messy as it is, because, Father, you are tapping them on the shoulder right now, and you are inviting them to see your son, Jesus, and to put their faith in him. Father, I pray for the other, others of us in here, for the places that our confidence has been in all of the wrong things, for the times when we have placed our confidence in ourselves and missed the opportunity to walk by faith with you. I pray that you would help us to repent, to undo the disillusionments, the, the false mindsets that we have embraced, and to come back to a place of deep trust in your son, Jesus, and in his power alone to move hearts and minds. So God, we do that. We commit ourselves afresh into your hands, and we look forward to how you are going to move in the lives around us. And we pray that the gospel will be what would be quickly on our lips this week. And in your beautiful name we pray, amen.